Yeah. Very good. I think we're going live, going live, going live. And we are live. Hello, everyone, for our second live stream of the day. Very, very good to be here. This is live stream. I believe we're at number 75, uh, which is quite exciting. It's been a long, very long, long way to the top, if you want to rock and roll, as, as ACDC would say. But, uh, but like I said, today, you know, I want to just touch on really quickly what we're about as a community, a couple of announcements, a couple of reminders. You know, the Data on Kubernetes community is committed to helping folks make the journey to start working with data, working with stateful workloads, databases, et cetera, on Kubernetes. Today's speaker that we have is someone who's been doing this for a while. I also put in a link to a great podcast that he did about two years ago. And I want to know a little bit about more about his journey, about how he got involved in this, because I think that'll sort of open us up to perhaps some resources we should keep in mind, some cultural things regarding what kind of mindset and mentality you need to have if you're going to be working with data on Kubernetes. Um, so very, very excited to have uh, Tamal Saha with us today. He is uh, very experienced in this area. So we're going to be asking, we're definitely going to be getting questions as usual. You got to know that you can put your questions in uh, in the in the chat here on YouTube. Another thing, just as a quick reminder, we are celebrating our second uh, co-located event in KubeCon, which will be on October 12th, and hopefully we'll have Tamal as a speaker. Um, but if you are interested in giving a talk about uh, your experience working with data on Kubernetes, working with stateful workloads, and particularly from an end user perspective, get a customer involved, I'll leave the CFP here in the chat um, so you can definitely check that out. And, and if you have any questions, of course, you're always welcome to jump in on Slack. Anyway, Tamal, very, very nice to have you with us uh, today. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background and where the idea of working with data on Kubernetes in your particular case, where'd that come from? How'd that happen? Yeah, thank you, Bart. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me and uh, from my team to kind of talk up to your audience today. Uh, yeah, so, you know, my background, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, working with Kubernetes since uh, um, 2015. So actually around the time I was working at Google as a software engineer, I was uh, part of the sort of the Google cloud, which is now called like a Firebase uh, part of the team. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was like their mobile uh, cloud uh, startup that they acquired. And, uh, you know, we're uh, kind of uh, doing internal development work and, and it became, you know, Kubernetes came out and then we could see that the you know the interest in containers was really growing and and felt like docker was or kubernetes was the missing piece because uh, you know at google we were using things like borg you may have heard about it mm -hmm. it's like the google sort of internal kubernetes like system that is used to deploy all of their production applications and and i figured that you know this will be a great time to kind of actually go and do my own thing so kind of i left google and started working on what's now called apps code and in the beginning we're trying to kind of build a, like a saas type of application uh and 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 i started doing that we kind of found out that you know we wanted to do dog food right like we wanted to run everything on kubernetes because we were you know we're like a, uh, telling people like hey you should run kubernetes so we should run ourselves too and one of the things that we struggled with is like managing the data side of things, right? Like how you run databases, because back in the day, I'm talking about like you, did, the stateful set even didn't exist. Like we were using deployment to run databases and that didn't usually don't go very well because you can, you know, like you can run only one pod because you cannot really mount more than one volume in a, you know, in a deployment, right? Like so, and, and if the, anytime pods restart, you have like a minor outage 
So we struggled with running our service and Kubernetes as a whole because you know the database thing wasn't really working. And then kind of I became familiar with this idea of this operator controller and and we figured, okay, hey, that seems like a problem that people would like to solve because I mean we are struggling with this and let's see if we can solve it for ourselves at least. And uh, yeah, so kind of we built an operator supporting like a Postgres and Elasticsearch as the primary database because that's what we were using at the time as like a and uh, and then we kind of open sourced it to see if anybody else would care about it. Yeah, and so I'm talking about like in you know, early 2017, which kind of open source it. And, uh, you know, on, on GitHub, uh, and it started to see a lot of activity from people mm -hmm. because, but I would say not a lot of uh, production activity at the time, but people were just curious, like if I can run databases on that. And, and you know, and, and there, at the time we were still calling it like a third party resources, TPR, and it's, there was no like a CRD, which is called today. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, kind of, uh, it kind of grew from there, really. People, you know, start, wanted to use it. We found, and then started requesting for additional databases. We added support for it. And over time, you know, um, this idea that, okay, yeah, you can run uh, really like a production quality database with all the functionality that you would expect and frankly, and really simplify the operational side of things, right? Like databases can be very tricky, right? Like anytime you are running a cluster database, like uh, there's a failover scenario, a lot of things has to happen correctly for things to recover. And, and if you can automate all of that and over time we find out, find out that, yeah, you can do all of that. You know, it's a, it's a lot of uh, work uh, learning to like, you know, learn, knowing Kubernetes very well and also learning the, about the database very well so that you are able to handle all those failure scenarios properly. But uh, you know, if you put in your time, uh, over time you can get to a system which is fairly stable and, uh, Click Kubernetes itself evolved over time. So like all the stateful set and, and then like this, you know, the storage layer got a full redone, right? Like the CSI stuff. Um, and the CRD thing became like really, you know, in the beginning CRDs or the TPRs were not that, uh, like you're not able to do a lot of things. Like, you know, like the, like all this validation loops and stuff was very important, right? Like if they, you know, there are times where user will, you know, do a kubectl apply and they have a, like a small bad YAML and that will break the operator because the operator cannot deterialize the, the YAML input that is coming from the user. And so think those things got fixed, right? And, and then it became really possible to run a stable, you know, when I say production grade, I, what I mean is something that is stable, like, you know, users cannot just break it, right? Like, you, you know, what you would expect. Uh, and then something that you can upgrade, right? Like uh, over time. Um, became possible with the Kubernetes. So I would say, yeah, so that's kind of, uh, you know, how, how my journey started. And over time, you know, we kind of uh, really focused on KubeDB because it seemed like a area, you know, uh, that uh, I, I thought that was quite important, but, uh, you know, uh, but nobody was really solving it, uh, you know, because the people had this opinion that you're just going to run uh, cloud provider services. Uh, why even bother with Kubernetes? Uh, and database, uh, but I would say if you look at you know how the trend is going in the last few years, I mean a lot of major database vendors themselves are offering their Kubernetes operators, and then like even there are like a lot of interest in the user community. So yeah, yeah, I think, it's, I think these are all great points and, and very solid summary. And this is one of the things that you mentioned as well in this uh, the data engineering podcast from a couple of years ago, is that is that one is that you see more and more people are trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to need to get into this space. 
Uh, how can I do it? What's the best way that's going to work for me? Operators seem to be one way to do it. Obviously, there are other ways, and we'll probably get to some of those, I imagine, in your presentation. But I think one of the big, really big questions for us is there's the what is data on Kubernetes and how is it done? Then the other question is why? And something that you mentioned a couple of years ago, and I imagine you'll be touching on later is, you know, well, there are different reasons, but one of the, a very strong one is wanting to have everything all in the same place. It's like, okay, we should be able to do everything in this environment so we don't have to be, you know, separating different, different things in different areas, having separate stacks um, that can bring on certain complications, different kinds of costs. We were talking about that. It could be just a financial cost, a cost in time, um, resources, what kind of teams you might need to have. So when approaching this question, why data on Kubernetes, um, what are some of the things that you generally, you know, bring to the table for that conversation? I would say that those, those uh, original, you know, reasoning is still kind of really the valid ones, right? Like, I think the first one is just the uh, operational simplicity, right? Using one stack for all of your, all parts of your application, right? Like you're running your microservices on Kubernetes, uh, and then you're, uh, you know, you're running maybe your monitoring stack with Prometheus also in Kubernetes. And then you want to run your database also on Kubernetes and, and not just database, but like other, uh, you know, stateful applications, like, you know, if you're using like a Kafka or Nets or things like that, that, that also has like a local data, you know, data, all of that potentially you want to run on Kubernetes because it just, uh, uh, you know, I, I know that when people hear about like operational simplicity and Kubernetes, they, they might uh, think, okay, what I'm talking about, but you know, <laughs> once you are already on Kubernetes, it, it does simplify like not having to think about five different systems, right? Like you just, okay, everything is on Kubernetes. I know how it works. And, and, and you can set up your monitoring, you know, if something goes wrong, you are able to connect one thing to other. The other big thing has been that the portability. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, I mean, when Kubernetes started, one of the big thing was portability and, and it, it, you know, it, it is still a kind of way, you still have to make good choices to achieve portability with Kubernetes, but it is doable. And, and for a large part of your application, like, you know, if you uh, are Kubernetes native, meaning like running everything on Kubernetes, you can go from one cloud to another. And it is not like, okay, I'm not going to do that for a multi-cluster. It's not necessarily that, but, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes uh, you have two teams. One team may be running on one cloud for one reason, another team may be running on one other cloud for a different reason, but the ops team or the platform team who's kind of managing all of that cloud stuff behind the scene, they they have a way to kind of, okay, give you a common infrastructure that, you know, just they can manage uh, across all cloud, right? Like, uh, so the, those, uh, and then, uh, and then obviously there's this thing, you know, uh, I mean, which is actually quite a bit of, a, I would say, business-wise important part, right? Like there are a lot of organizations who are not able to use cloud, uh, usually government organizations, financial, medical health, all of that. And, and, um, and they, they are modernizing their, you know, uh, their digital journey with Kubernetes. Mm. Like, and, and in those uh, scenarios where they are running on their own data center, uh, they, they are not uh, really able to use cloud services. So they need to use something like a Kubernetes and, 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 you know, and they are, they are really looking to uh, use something like a, you know, QDB type system where they can manage like all the databases internally. And, and then, and the last one is obviously cost. Uh, so, you know, it's cost kind of, uh, you know, obviously there's like a different types of cost, right? So there's the cost of uh, the engineering resources, basically the engineer that you have to hire to manage all of that. But once you have hired one, somebody to do, you know, your microservices stack, 
it's no, no, no more cost to actually also run databases uh, for them, manage databases for them. Uh, the other thing is, you know, uh, these managed services, actually, if you look at how much they cost, um, they cost quite a bit. I mean, I'm talking about just a, on an infrastructure cost level, you can actually save quite a bit. Like if you look at this, any of these managed services out there on the cloud, right? Like if you look at, okay, what is the cost of the VMs? And then like what they are actually charging for as a managed service, you know, on a small instances, it's not much, but then the moment you have like a, you know, large databases, you know, which pretty common we see in production, like, you know, the cost could be quite a bit. So when you are running on, you know, Kubernetes, you know, you're kind of uh, slicing that two part, right? You're still going to pay your underlying cloud provider or infrastructure provider for the infrastructure cost, but the rent extraction that is happening at the software services level that you can escape from some of that by using a Kubernetes native uh, tool like UDB. So, so I think that's, that's those I would say come the Great. For you. Yeah, very, very solid. Um, that being said, if you wanna jump into your presentation, go right ahead. Uh, I'll uh, share my screen. Okay. Just really quickly as well too, I'll put the link in for, for QDB if anybody wants to check that out while we're talking. Are you able to see my screen now? Yeah, perfect. Okay. So yeah, so this is kind of, uh, you know, uh, will be continuation of what we just talked about. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you already know it's Kubernetes, you know, is how people are really running sort of modern containerized applications and on cloud or on-prem. Uh, but, uh, you know, despite uh, that Kubernetes has become so popular, especially it has uh, such a nice uh, support for running microservices or stateless applications, the data layer still has quite a bit of challenge uh, because, uh, you know, Kubernetes doesn't really do you, uh, provide you. Uh, it provides you sort of the underlying uh, primitive, but doesn't really kind of provide you the knowledge that is required to run data application or stateful applications on Kubernetes. And, and today, if you are running your applications on Kubernetes and you need a database, you kind of have, I would say, three sort of solutions, right, or options. One is uh, go with whatever the cloud provider is offering, right, AWS, RDS, Azure, Google Cloud, they all have their some form of managed database service. Obviously, you can go with a hosted database service that is usually provided by the database vendors themselves. I mean, this has become, like, you know, pretty common these days, like Mongo Atlas or Elastic Cloud. British cloud, all of that. Obviously, and the third option is that, okay, uh, no, you uh, run a, the Kubernetes cluster and run your databases inside Kubernetes, right? And, and kind of just use one stack. Now, the question is, you know, the question that we were just talking about, like, should you even run databases on Kubernetes, right? I mean, there's the why also is like, is it, I mean, you know, is it even reasonable, right? And uh, I would say that, uh, it has become very reasonable of late, right? In the last, I would say, couple of years. I mean, you know, we started almost five years ago, but like in the last two, three years, I would say it's become quite uh, practical yeah, to do it just from engineering point of view. Like, you know, Kubernetes is now really battle tested and very widely adopted, right? Like you can go to any cloud, you know, any, uh, if you have a bunch of VMs, you are able to deploy Kubernetes. It's not that difficult anymore. Uh, 
the idea of this stateful set that's built into Kubernetes today, like which is kind of giving you pods with the stable DNS names, that has uh, that is you know great for this running stateful apps because this databases usually expect to be able to use some kind of a, you know machine so they have a stable name because they usually communicate with each other or sync data using these names. And then the concept of this custom resource uh, is TA since I think September 2019 uh, or 2020, I think, uh, I think 2019. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, it, it has like the, the first plus support uh, any other Kubernetes native resources that built-in resources, right? So, so when you are uh, building this kind of uh, database solutions, you are able to give users all the functionality that they expect, right? Like obviously the just a, a kubectl support like rbex support like having proper validation so that users cannot like you know make a simple mistakes and mess up the database and all of that those are possible today uh, the kubernetes storage layer kind of got a complete redone right like there was a csi driver uh, now uh, which is kind of going ga of very recently right in the 1.22 i believe uh, so this uh, CSI drivers is enabling things like volume expansion, volume snapshot. So effectively these things are, you know, I would say after people have run, uh, managed to run a database on Kubernetes, the first thing that they care about is like, how do I back up, back it up, right? Like how I back up a database, restore it. So those things uh, are much better supported with CSI drivers today. Uh, and then uh, security, in terms of like certificate management, right? Like how we make sure that my database is, has a TLS set up. Those things are now much easier with something like Cert Manager, right? It's, it's become sort of pretty much a, a the standard way people are managing certificates in Kubernetes. Uh, and then operators, right? Like, uh, so that this Kubernetes, uh, you know, operators which can kind of, uh, this I would say really the missing piece in running databases on Kubernetes because you know, databases uh, usually have some database specific approach or, uh, you know, sort of procedures that you need to follow when you are managing them, right? Like meaning when you provision them, how you set up clustering, when there is a failure scenario, how you recover them, those things needs to be, you know, captured, you know, uh, in some kind of automated fashion because in Kubernetes, uh, you cannot really have a manual step, right? Once you ask Kubernetes to manage a system, from that point on, if things, uh, you know, things really has to be automated. I mean, I would say this has been really one of the biggest challenges for people to adopt Kubernetes because uh, in the old days, you know, you'll probably deploy stuff with Chef or Puppet or things like that. Uh, that will be a one-time deployment. But then like, if something goes, uh, you know, maybe you periodically go and update the database and whatnot, but there's not going to be a runtime thing, right? Like there's not an automated failover or things like that. If there's a failover, you get an alert, then you have to do something, fix it. But with Kubernetes, that's not a realistic approach, right? Like, because if there's a failover, Kubernetes is going to restart the pod. And if the, if the pod doesn't restart in the correct way, then you might lose data on that pod because that data might get corrupted because it's now has become like, you know, a lot of common scenario is like a cluster database that it becomes into a split brain scenario uh, because that pod now doesn't know that it was part of a cluster. So it became like its own cluster and now you have a problem. So, so what I'm saying that uh, there's things uh, needs to be kind of properly managed when you're trying to run database and Kubernetes because of this automation. This automation is actually a very good thing because when there is a failure, your recovery is much faster. It, there is not a manual step. 
but getting getting this manual step uh, automated uh, th that has been a, you know one of the jobs or task of this operator and, and that has been uh, you know uh, a long journey I would say to get there and then obviously I talk about backups and recovery today there's like a lot of tools for doing those and 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 as you can see, like database vendors themselves, like you know, look at Mongo, Elastic, all of the, I mean, Couchbase, they all have their own sort of uh, Kubernetes operators today. So so you know, I mean, database vendors are themselves seeing the benefit, or I would assume, you know, uh, ask from their users, right? Like because uh, actually they are also looking at their users and doing what they what their users are asking for them from them. So so it has become uh, quite popular to actually, or uh, I would say. From a technical point of view, it has become possible uh, to uh, and 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 run a production-ready database on Kubernetes today. Um, so, like I said, you know, you're not alone, right? Like, I mean, if you look at all these big names on this slide, like DataStax, MongoDB, Elastic, CorpusDB, you know, Percona, like Redish, I mean, they all have their uh, Kubernetes operator or some form of Kubernetes native solution that they can run. I mean, today it is very, un, uh, it will be very uncommon that uh, to see projects that doesn't have a Kubernetes operator. I mean, so, so it's there. Um, now, getting back to that question, like, you know, what are the factors you should consider when you are trying to run a database on Kubernetes? So this is kind of some of the things that we see uh, sort of some of the deciding factors, uh, like, you know, based on your answer to these questions, you might go, you know, you might have one or more solution available to you, right? So we'll go with them. Like, let's say uh, you are going with a cloud provider solution. So if you go with the cloud provider solution, I think the, the primary benefit is that like really ease of use, right? Cloud providers usually offer like a bunch of different databases and they manage it all of it for you, right? And then usually they have pretty easy like one click type of uh, deployment uh, setup, right? Like, you know, uh, deploy it, maybe you get all the observability like a dashboard and all of that. Uh, they give you a way to kind of backup, restore these databases. So it, it simplifies a lot of the operational aspect of the provisioning a database. It is important to understand though that cloud providers don't, aren't really your DBA. They are not going to, if you have a slow query, they are not going to tell you how to fix that, right? You still have to do it manually or yourself or in-house. Uh, but what they do is they make it very easy to kind of uh, provision and sort of manage the day-to-day -day life cycle of a database, right? Like backing up, you know, have a TLS setup and all of that. I think the, Issue with this is usually, you know, if you have a uh, some kind of uh, regulatory requirements, like okay, I need to keep my data in this location, or maybe not on cloud, things like that. Uh, then this is not an option for you, right? Your, your cloud itself is not really an option for you at that point. If you want to run things like an air gap cluster, it's not. Uh, then other thing is, you know. Uh, the latency aspect does come into play because uh, you know you're running your application in one data inside one VPC maybe, but the database services that are provided usually running on a different uh, VPC, uh, so you kind of have to go through this clause cause VPC extra latency. I mean, if you are running in Kubernetes, there's it's just in the same VPC, so things are 
you know, just a, within the same cluster. And, and, and this can be even more important, like if you are trying to use a service, uh, you want to run, you know, depending on which cloud you are on, you may not have the same quality of database service, right? So, uh, and, and sometimes depending on which region you are on, some database vendors doesn't have the same service in all, all uh, locations, right? So it could be a problem for you. You could be limited in terms of your choice. Obviously, vendor lock locking is an issue. I mean, people might say, okay, hey, maybe I'm using Postgres. Why, how am I vendor locked in? But, but you still have to kind of go through the database vendors approach of deploying or provisioning the database. Maybe you have written up some Terraform script, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're still using Chef and Puppet or manually do this stuff. And, and uh, so you kind of, or maybe Pulumi or all of those things, but so now we kind of have this provisioning scripts that are kind of, uh, you know, tied to the database, uh, sorry, the cloud provider itself, even though your database itself is, uh, you know, uh, maybe something like Postgres, which is not locked into a specific anything. Um, and then uh, I would say, you know, if you have uh, things like IoT Edge, so it's just kind of really a version of running on-prem, right? Like a lot of people have use cases where they are running like, you know, telcos, I would say, like they are, run, they are running like their fools kind of the 5G stack on sort of their endpoint data centers. And, and, and they cannot really just do uh, use cloud in those cases. And so, so they then, then they are stuck to, you know, so they are using Kubernetes and they, they need a way to run databases. Uh, and then price usually becomes another factor, right? So price, it's a kind of a complex topic, obviously, but uh, the database services could be quite pricey. I mean, if you look at uh, the price of the actual underlying, uh, the, the, you know, the VMs or the machines that they use and compare the price of a uh, managed service, you know, even a lot of times it's quite interesting because they are just running open source software on the VMs, but then they are adding a quite a bit of markup to that uh, VM price. And uh, so, so you, if you're running on inside Kubernetes, you could potentially save on that. And, and other big thing we have seen is uh, the sort of third-party integration. So for example, like one of the things we know, or we have been told by our users is that they are using something called DBGM. It's a Kafka, like a change detection system and they are not able to use something like a AWS RDS because it doesn't allow you to kind of install like a custom plugins. It may have changed in the meantime, but it used to be true at least, you know, even six months ago. Uh, so there are things like that where, you know, yes, it, it, the benefit is uh, the ease of use, the operational simplicity that it brings. Uh, but then like there are other vectors where you kind of uh, lose uh, if you are going with a cloud provider or it, it's not necessarily cloud provider, but it's just any managed solution will put a kind of a, you know, have their, you know, set of features that they offer, right? So the other things, if you need anything else, you, you're limited. Uh, so same issue goes with the database vendor uh, provided kind of like a cloud database solution, right? Like database as a service. I mean, here you have the additional issue that you, you know, obviously the database vendors only offer one database, you know, whatever database they're uh, building. Uh, so, and, you know, if you are on a cloud, right? If you are on the, one of the three major clouds, AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud, usually uh, you have a choice, but then like if you are using the, any of these other clouds, right? Maybe you are using something like DigitalOcean or Linode. I mean, 
you are not able to really use those database vendor solutions because they don't uh, really support those, uh, you know, kind of, I would say, kind of this sort of, there's the hyperscalers and then the one, the guys, everybody below that, right? Like there's uh, non-hyperscaler clouds, uh, usually not supported uh, by these database vendors. Uh, so you're kind of limited in their uh, option. Now let's look at what is, uh, you know, what it looks like if you're trying to run in uh, Kubernetes in database. Uh, so if you're trying to run this in Kubernetes, I mean, obviously, you know, there is no limitation in terms of your choice of database, right? If you are running, if you are able to, you know, if the database vendor has a, a Docker container, you are able to run the database. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty straightforward to just get up and running. You have no limitation in terms of where you run your workloads, right? You can run on cloud, you can run on-prem, you can go with IoT, like if you have a lot of edge clusters, you can use it, right? If you have air gap requirement, like, you know, it has to be uh, completely separated from outside world, you can do those, right? You just like, load all your Docker images inside a private registry, deploy your cluster, deploy your operator, you can run it. I already mentioned about this latency thing, right? So you don't have this, uh, you know, because everything runs inside the same sort of pod network. So there is not really a major uh, latency uh, penalty that you have to pay uh, because it's not, you know, the, the packets are not like, you know, going through layers of uh, indirection every time. Uh, and then the performance, right? So the performance comes to uh, like, especially for on-prem, like a lot of people are running uh, um, sort of databases and they have like a really fast local disk, like basically like NVMe disks. And, and you can take advantage of that with Kubernetes, right? Like you, you, know, you kind of uh, have like a really, really fast, uh, you know, like if you have a requirement for a very high you know, write speed, um, IOPS requirements, you are able to do that uh, with the, you know, obviously you have to pay for those additional hardware, uh, but you are able to do it. Uh, uh, so yeah, the security, you know, I mean, you have kind of full control, right? I mean, security as everything else, right? Like you have to set it up properly, but once you do, you will get more security out of a Kubernetes-based solution because you have more control over what things are there uh, compared to a database, uh, you know, managed solution because you know there you are limited to what what you are offered uh observability yes you know uh, with the prometheus grafana becoming sort of the standard observability stack for kubernetes you know uh, it's pretty easy to get a good observability solution set up for your database obviously because you are running docker containers there is no limitation in terms of what you know third-party tools you can have right like you want post gis with postgres Great, just run it over container with the PostGIS plugins built in. You want uh, time scale DB with PostGIS, just you can run it. Right? You want to uh, use things like the DBGM or stuff like that. That's any, any kind of basically database plugins or extensions that exist. You can just use it um, because you know uh, you are running a Docker container. I would say the challenges and even in the in terms of pricing, right? Because you are not paying for this, uh, you know, this high cost of managed uh, service, uh, it, it could be quite, uh, you know, price, uh, cost saving in terms of just a pure dollar value uh, saving uh, savings. Um, now, the challenge usually is the ease of use, right? Because it's a, you know, it comes to the maturity of the solutions or the options that you have available for running database on Kubernetes. So I would say that from the Kubernetes point of view, things are much more uh, stable or mature now. Uh, yeah, obviously there could be things that could get better, but 
but then usually if you're using something like an operator, you also need to kind of focus on that. And, and those operators, you know, takes time to get stable and mature. But I think, you know, what time you will see that there is no limitation in terms of what you can do. Um, and uh, uh, disaster recovery, you know, I mean, same as like how you do backups and recovery. I, I would say that those things are also kind of getting easier today, like, you know, uh, with the Kubernetes, CSI and everything. Um, I think the only thing that will be left is like operational complexity and then learning curve. Operational complexity usually, I mean, what I'm trying to talk about is, yes, all of these operating stuff is possible, but you kind of today you still have to a lot of times go to a website, download stuff, deploy stuff. You kind of you know there's a bug because a lot of things are open source. You may not have preferred support, so okay, something is a problem. You kind of have to figure it out yourself. Maybe go to a Slack. I mean, it's a uh, it's still kind of a quite a bit of. Uh, work to get something you know up and running right it's not like where you get on a cloud provider okay you are maybe paying more but you know it saves you time because you just go click it works and that's it but you know this i would say this is not a fundamental limitation of running database on kubernetes this is more like a state of the world today uh, and frankly within a lot of uh, you know like companies like us and other people who are working in the space uh, really addressing this issue so it, it, it is I, I believe in a few more years, it will get much more you know, easier. Um, so, so now let's say you kind of, I have convinced you by this time that maybe it is possible or reasonable to run databases on Kubernetes. I think the one of the big questions people usually get is like, okay, do I just use like a Helm chart that I have that I got uh, or do I need like an operators? And, and, and the question here really is, you know, looking at what Helm offers, and what operators offer, right? So Helm, the benefit is that, okay, you just do Helm install, the thing gets running. But if you look at Helm at its core, it is really like a package manager. It is not meant to be a system that manages your day to life cycle of a database, right? Like the things that I talked about, like, okay, how you do clustering and then like how you do failover, how do backups. So Helm is good for deploying stuff but then what gets deployed is, isn't really in Helm's parlance, right? Like you have to kind of have your own application uh, or kind of a Kubernetes operator that knows about that particular database and manages that aspect of it. So, so, so yeah, so if you are really running like a, you know, if you're just doing a demo, you can use Helm to just deploy a database and do its thing, right? Because you don't care about what happens the next day. But if you're thinking about like a day two, uh, and think about how do I upgrade? How do I set up TLS? How do I you know scale up, scale down, things like that? Backups, recovery, all of those sort of aspects that people would care about in a day to settings, then you do need to go with an operator that addresses those concerns or maybe a collection of operators that addresses those concerns. Uh, so when you're picking an operator, there is obviously choice, right? So uh, we built the operator called KubeDB, but then there are like other ones. I would say, you know, uh, what has been our approach is that uh, one operator that addresses or that manages all of your databases, sort of a, a kind of a, um, I would say like a, a horizontal approach, you can say, like, you know, support, uh, instead of having like a separate operator for each database, and then each operator kind of working slightly differently uh, you have like one operator and that sort of manages all the databases. That's that's kind of our approach with KubeDB. So it simplifies your 
you know, uh, management approach. And, and frankly, uh, if you go today, like, you know, a lot of people have written a paradox, but uh, uh, it's not main, get, get maintained after a while because of writing a paradox is quite a bit of a uh, tricky stuff, primarily because it needs some specialized knowledge, right? Like you have to be pretty good with Kubernetes, Kubernetes operators, uh, and then also be kind of an expert in the particular database for which you are writing the operator to actually get to a point where things are stable, mature, production ready. And, and, and that takes a long time. It's not like, a, at least in my opinion, it's not a, a side project that you can do. It just it really isn't. Uh, you, you have to keep up with all of this. Uh, and, that, 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 and as a result, uh, you know, you have to pick it up part of that is well-maintained uh, at least. Um, so that's where QDB comes in. And uh, we try to kind of manage all your databases. And when you talk about like, you know, same thing works similarly, like you want to set up a backup. So the, from the end user's uh, point of view, the backup for every database looks pretty much the same. You give it a database reference, you give it a bucket reference where you want to store the bucket. So the, the backup, da backup data, and it kind of all whatever happens behind the scene, all managed by KubeDB. It, it has to do various different things based on different database. But from a user's point of view, it's no different, right? And and not just that, like you want to scale up, scale down, do all those kind of a ops request, uh, we call it, like a kind of a day two operations. Uh, those are also similar across all your databases. So it kind of really simplifies that learning curve and the operational complexity because once you know one. Uh, have used one database, you you can you know use uh, the other database fairly easily, uh, and and uh, and uh, really uh, you know uh, so KubeDB uh, you know one of our common common use cases that we see is used as a internal database as a service like a database as a service uh, for people who are adopting Kubernetes. Yeah, so I mean, you kind of already talked about that, uh, this, you know, so like if you're going QDB kind of versus operator versus the Helm chart approach, like, you know, you get all these day two aspects addressed for you, right? Like backups, updates, um, scaling up, CPU memory, storage, you know, replica counts, horizontal or vertical scaling, certificate management. And then like, we also have a nice integration with uh, HashiCorp Vault. So you want to like manage those credentials, like rotate those credentials, you know, uh, those things are possible uh, with the with the QDB managed uh, solution. And then because this is all custom resource based, so you get RBAC, right? Like you can restrict who can create a database in which namespace, which is effectively RBAC. Uh, these things are possible with the Helm chart, you know, you just Helm install. So you usually have, don't have a control over that. Um, and then uh, because this is all CRD based, you know, you can use kubectl or you can also use, uh, you know, programmatically, right? So, you know, Kubernetes API server is a CRUD API. So you can go from any application, right? You can use Go uh, or any Python, Java, whatever to actually programmatically provision these databases inside your cluster. Uh, with the helm, it's more like okay, you have to shell exec and do stuff like that. So, so simplifies that aspect of it. So, what databases are supported with the KubeDB today? So, we try to, like I said, we our approach is to kind of take a horizontal approach. Right? If we want to make sure that any database that you need or use uh, is supported, so we today we support uh, Mongo, Elastic, Postgres, MySQL. 
Maria DB, Barcona, Extra DB, Dreddish, Memcache. Uh, we also have a support for PoxySQL and PG Bouncer, you know, and frankly, we are looking to add support for more. In a way, we want to make sure that uh, if you are running database on Kubernetes, KubeDB kind of addresses that problem or that aspect of your, uh, uh, you know, operational uh, operational aspect of you completely. It's not, you don't have to go to five different vendors. Uh, so, so today this is where we are. Um, so with that. Uh, this is what it looks like if you were trying to use KubeDB. So you, we actually use Helm chart to deploy the operator. So it's kind of a one command. Uh, so here you kind of basically Helm install, deploy the chart. So we had like a few different, uh, so it's an open core product. So we have a community edition uh, that can kind of uh, use as a day one or sort of CI CD type of environment. But then uh, the day two aspect of the product is a enterprise product. So it's a, you know, uh, you have to basically buy a license to use it. It comes with 30 day free trial. So during that period, you can try it, um, but then you can work with us too, if you have any, uh, you know, questions uh, about the product. So with that, I'll hand it over to uh, Fahim from my team. Uh, he's going to give you a demo of using KubeDB uh, to kind of provision and manage various aspects of a MongoDB database. Let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, stop my screen share. And okay. Thank you, Tamal and Bert. Let me my share pleasure. my screen. Good. Uh, can you see my screen? Yep. Yeah. Hello everyone, I'm Fahim, Senior Software Engineer at Epscot. Today I'm going to show how to provision MongoDB using KubeDB. So before starting to the demo, let me show you my environment first. So I'm using kind version 0.1.10 and Kubernetes uh, version 1.20.2. I have uh, this Helm charts installed. Uh, the sub manager chart is for the certificate man management of the database, and the KubeDB chart is for the uh, MongoDB database management, and the Prometheus chart is for the uh, monitoring of the database, and the stash chart is for the uh, backup and restore of the database. Okay, now let's jump into the demo. So, this is the YML of the MongoDB. Here we are providing the, in the spec section, we are providing the version of the database. So this is a, a KubeDB specific version, 4.1.3.2.1. Uh, this is the YML of the MongoDB version of the KubeDB. So as you can see, it, uh, it has the meta information that uh, KubeDB needs to manage this version, like the actual version number is uh, here, the database image, init container image, etc. information are provided in this MongoDB version. We are going to deploy a replica set of three replicas. So we are providing the replica set information here. This is the replica set name and the, it will have three replicas. Uh, we are going to have the SSL environment on this database. So we are providing the SSL information here. As you can see, the SSL mode is required SSL and in the TLS- oh, what? Sorry, sorry, Fahim, could you zoom in a little bit or make the font size bigger? Would that be possible? Oh, I guess in the terminal, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the uh, presentation actually. Yeah, and if you go to when you go to the terminal, I think that's fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
No worries. It just uh, sometimes uh, when you know, when it going to YouTube, the quality decreases a little bit. So just so that it's a little bit sharper. That's all. Okay. So no. here in the TLS section, uh, we are providing the issuer ref. So what is the issuer? Uh, it is the start manager issuer that uh, issues the certificates for uh, our database. So we are providing in the issuer spec uh, the CA of the uh, CA here, the in the secret name Mongo CA. So what the issuer does is uh, uses this CA to provision our certificates. So in the config secret, we are providing a secret name config. Uh, this config secret uh, holds the configuration of the database. Like we are providing a simple configuration here, the max incoming connection is 100,000. So uh, in the monitor section, we are providing the Prometheus uh, agent so that our database have uh, monitoring enabled. And the port tabness section, you can see we are providing the uh, request and limits of the database as one core CPU and one GB memory. Also, we are providing a one GB storage here. Let's apply the uh, MongoDB database. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So the database is applied. As you can see here, the database is now in provisioning state. Also, the uh, ports are uh, coming up here. The first port is coming up here. While this is being provisioned, let me show you the version that QDB supports. So these are the version that QDB currently supports. Uh, the latest version that QDB supports is 4.4.6, but we are working to add the support for MongoDB 5, which should be out uh, here on in a couple of weeks. Okay, as you can see, the first port is uh, ready and in running state. Here you can see that uh, two services. Uh, the first service is the primary service of the database, which points to the primary member of the replica set. And the second service is a, a governing service that points to all the ports of the database. As you can see that uh, the uh, primary service is pointing to the IP 132, which is the first port IP. So our first port is the primary port. Also, you can check the uh, port is primary or standby from the levels. So if we check the levels of the prime, uh, first port, you can see that there is a level kubedb.com slash role, which uh, points to primary. So our the first port is actually primary. So the second port is also up. We can check the second port's levels. As you can see, the kubedb.com uh, role is standby. So it's a secondary port. Our third node is uh, now coming up, which is now running state. Let me see the role of that node. So as you can see, it's also a standby node. So as you can see here, the database is now in ready state. So let's uh, exec into the database and uh, see if our information matches inside the database. So as you can see, I'm Kibzeril uh, executing into the database. Uh, so I'm providing the Mongo command here. Uh, here I'm providing the SSL CA certificate and the client certificate as our database uh, runs with TLS. And uh, 
these uh, certificates are mounted into the port, so you can use them directly from the port. So let's connect to the database. So as you can see, we are connected to the primary of the database. Let's check the version. So as you can see, the version is 4.1.3, which matches the version of our KubeDB uh, MongoDB. Now let's uh, check the uh, configuration that we have provided before. It, it's a reflex here or not. As you can see, the next incoming connection is the 100,000, which we have provided in the config secret. Okay, now let's uh, insert some uh, documents in a collection. Let's create a database named kubedb. Then insert uh, some data in a test collection. So we have inserted one document, two documents. We have inserted three documents. Let's see if they are in the collection. As you can see, the test collection contains these three documents. We will verify later after performing some operations that if the data is still here or not. Okay. So as we, you know, we have enabled monitoring for this database. Let's see if we can uh, uh, see the Grafana dashboard. Time for portporting the Grafana port. I've already installed the Prometheus Grafana. Let's check from the browser. We are seeing the uh, Grafana dashboard. So I have already a chart created. So as you can see, uh, here are some graphs. Uh, you can use your own graphs and import it here. You can uh, have your own chart. Okay, let's uh, now get to the next section. So now I'll show some DB operations using MongoDB Ops request. You can ask what is MongoDB Ops request. MongoDB Ops request is a, a CRD of QDB, which manages the day two operation of the database. Uh, day two operations are such uh, like upgrading the database into a new version uh, or the scaling vertically or horizontally or like uh, reconfiguring the database, reconfiguring TLS, etc. So first let's see a upgrade operation. So this is a MongoDB Ops request to IML. Here we are providing the type as upgrade. In the database reference section, we are providing our database name. And in the upgrade section, we are providing the target version as 4.2.3, which we want to update. Okay, let's uh, apply this YML. We have applied the upgrade YML. You can see that here. Uh, the upgrade uh, obstacles is now in progressing state. So, what will happen now? The kubedb operator will upgrade all the ports and uh, perform necessary operation. It needs to be done to upgrade the database. So as you can see the second port, which is a, it will actually uh, smartly restart all the database port to a new version. 
So by smartly, I mean it knows how, which port to restart first. So this is the secondary port. So it's, uh, it will uh, restart all the secondary port first with the new version. And then finally, it will uh, update the primary port. So currently, it's uh, restarting the secondary port, the second port. As you can see, the database is now in critical state. So the critical state means that uh, one, at least one of the ports are not ready. As you can see, this port is not ready. So our database is showing critical state. When this port becomes ready, you can see that the database will immediately become ready. As you can see, it is ready and our database also became ready. Now our QDU operator is uh, restarting the second secondary port, which is this one. So it's now in terminating state. So our database is also showing critical. Uh, so one of the port is not ready. our this part is ready and our database is also ready now. So now the QDB uh, will update this uh, primary port. As you can see, it uh, the IP here already changed to a new IP. As you can see, the IP is 137, which is the second port. So our new primary is the second port. As it the upgrades the first port, which was the previous primary, it, uh, before it's it upgrading that port, uh, it actually uh, changed the primary to a new one. Like uh, it uh, changes it to the second port and uh, now the primary is also upgraded. As you can see, our ops request is now successful. Also, you can see here in the database, uh, Hello, Fahim. Uh, Fahim, I think we lost your audio. That's okay. Also, we, we have a question right here. Um, uh, Tamal, I'm not sure maybe if you want to answer this. Someone yes. asks, uh, is the database usable in a critical state? Yes. So what critical means is that uh, one of the pods is uh, like restarting or usually like a you know terminating phase, but the database is still usable. The primary service is usable. Uh, we just indicate that you know, we kind of wanted to uh, show that to the user that it's uh, from the, when it is ready, it means like uh, all the ports are running and you are able to connect with the database and uh, no issue there. But uh, here in uh, uh, one of the ports are restarting, uh, it uh, it kind of shows you that it, it's something, something is not at the 100% state. So so it kind of, we, we use the word term critical to show that. Yeah, but the database still is usable. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, fine. Uh, uh, are you able to hear us? Yeah, it says that his microphone's on. But anyway, all kinds of things can happen when it comes to microphones. The demo's the demo's going very well, but the demo effect is now affecting the microphone. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, Fahim, maybe you wanna. I, I can mute him and then ask him to unmute. Oh, now he, he dropped. 
Um, maybe he's just gonna hop out and then hop right back in to uh, to see if that works. That's totally fine. These things happen. It's it's 2021 and we have to know how to improvise. Um, so that's no big deal. Um, that's all good, but up to here so far so good. My, my one question, I mean, obviously yeah. to have QDB to work for every single database out there, you know, maybe would be complicated, but are there plans to add more databases as well? Uh, yes. Uh, so we have plans to add support for additional databases. Uh, you know, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, when we started, we took a kind of a, I would say a breadth first approach, right? We kind of started, added support for a bunch of different databases. Uh, and then um, uh, kind of because that gave us a way to see what common YAML format we could have for this across databases. And once we are able to get that, uh, we, uh, we kind of, uh, you know, stabilize that. And uh, once that was stable, we kind of look, went into more like a depth first approach. So kind of adding support for all these data stuff and backups and all of that. And once that is all done, uh, kind of, you know, so, I mean, we're still sort of in the process of doing for some of those databases, but once sort of we are stable in there, we'll, we'll look to add support for additional databases. And, uh, and, and uh, yeah, we're looking to uh, hear from, you know, uh, even from your audience, like, you know, whatever, whatever database they would like to see support for. Yeah, and collect kind of feedback from users to. Well, that's because that. that's the thing I was going to say is because like cause some of the databases I didn't see there, and obviously it's totally fine, and there are many databases. So that's why my question is, you know, obviously in an ideal world it would apply to all of them, but for example, you know, uh, Cassandra, Cockroach, Yugabyte, um, perhaps there might be special characteristics of those databases that make it harder to integrate with QDB or anything in particular you'd comment on that. Uh, no, I don't think anything specifically makes it harder. I mean, we kind of just went with sort of the, what are the primary data stores? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so primary data source like Postgres, MySQL. Uh, so uh, once sort of uh, those are done, uh, so uh, yeah, so once those are done, uh, we're kind of uh, looking to, you know, things like Kafka or other stuff or, or like SQL Server, uh, you know, uh, then uh, Cassandra, those things uh, could be interesting addition. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I, I mean, frankly at this time, you know, those, those database vendors, you know, I mean, it, it was still also a case of like, okay, uh, you know, some, some, in some cases database vendors themselves are doing so, you know, Kubernetes seriously. So if they are doing seriously, maybe uh, we're able to use that, uh, but you know, this is something, uh, you know, we, we have to see what, what comes next. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. And, and, and obviously, you know, we've had a fair amount of Postgres talks here. MBS Postgres is just so battle tested, you know, over the years um, and is used very, very widely. Uh, that seems to be an obvious choice. MongoDB as well, too. And we've had talks with, uh, with Percona where they've talked about, you know, MongoDB um, also, you know, uh, experiences working with operators there. So it, it's, uh, it's healthy to see that. But like you said, the, the, and this is one of the tricky things as well, too, because in previous conversations and with um, some other folks, the conversation, you know, could there be one operator to rule them all? But because each database is so unique in its own way, to have that seems challenging. However, KubeDB seems to be answering part of that in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, so when, when we are presenting this one operator to rule them all, you know, I mean, we kind of... Uh, to the end user, we are kind of giving this one common interface, but behind the scene when implementing it, we are still kind of, uh, you know, the database specific aspect of those things are kind of done separately, right? It's just hidden from the 
end user, like like the complexity is hidden from the end user, uh, but uh, the users. Uh, so so the, the the YAML format you just saw, like you know, kind of you you can kind of take most of it and you know go to Postgres and able to sort of basically you know you have to obviously change the kind to say it's Postgres SQL, change the version, but like. If you want a TLS issuer, like it looks the same, right? If you want a backup or a Prometheus setup, it kind of looks the same. And, 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 and that's how we kind of make it easy for you to kind of you know, go from one database to another. So things that are same across databases, kind of we try to make sure that they look sort of same to the end user. Mm -hmm. Obviously, things that are specific to, specific to a database, we make that specific to that, to that user, yeah. And it was it was doing these integrations, being able to support all those databases that you showed. I mean, there's there's over ten. Um, what have been the things that you've learned along the way, or perhaps maybe had a certain idea going into it, and then once you know having that direct contact, and I imagine as well too, the feedback that you get from users. Was there has there been anything that surprised you? Uh, I, I would say that uh, you know in uh, uh, we had uh, quite a bit of. Uh, uh, challenge in terms of, you know, uh, I would say making all the different types of failover scenarios that can happen, mm -hmm. because especially in Kubernetes, uh, uh, you know, uh, a pod can restart at any time, and one of more than more of them can restart, and how you make sure those things get handled, the, I would say that that has been one of the areas where uh, we had to put in a lot of work and effort, uh, sort of making sure everything works. Uh, and, and especially Kubernetes presents some unique failover scenarios in terms of like, okay, you know, you're, you, you may have a clustered Mongo, right? Like with three replicas, but then the whole cluster can go down. I mean, uh, depending on whatever you are doing, right? Maybe you go to the cloud providers console and just delete the whole cluster or something like that, mm -hmm. or maybe starting the whole thing because you are doing an upgrade. Actually deleting the cluster is not a common scenario, but like you are doing an upgrade of the Kubernetes version. And how do you make sure that your cluster still is, stays up and right, like all those, you know, things like that uh, port disruption budgets and other stuff, those things we had to kind of implement. So I'd say it's not necessarily a surprise, but like the number of failure scenarios that is possible with Kubernetes is quite oh, very long. Yeah, it's a long because of the automation, right? Yeah, like yeah. because of the automation. Uh, you know, it, it, things can restart and, and, and when it restarts, making sure everything comes back up properly, correctly. Uh, so that has been an interesting journey for us. You know, another question as well, too, because you mentioned about, you know, um, you know, in some cases, you know, working with governments, but I just said it just because very recently, you know, the National Security Administration, the NSA, came out with a report telling folks about how to harden, you know, uh, Kubernetes. And obviously, you know, one, one, one part of this can be, you know, cybersecurity and things of that nature. But what I want to say more about that, because they, they talk about sort of uh, some good cybersecurity practices are you know, related to uh, permissions and who has access to what and things like that. But in terms of the data side of Kubernetes, and once again, why to run data on Kubernetes, um, do you feel that that also in your, you know, in your experience, you, you just mentioned, you know, the possibility of fail, uh, failures and in, in, in those issues, but that Kubernetes will slowly but surely become a little bit more boring in the sense that it won't be such a wide landscape that people encounter, but some things that would be more focused and could data become one of those things that would be more focused? I mean... You know, in the, in the container world, it's kind of really hard to predict what's going to happen. But I think, 
uh, I mean, in terms of boarding, I would say as more people get uh, familiar or, you know, develop skills in using Kubernetes, obviously it is going to get boring because, you know, people aren't, it, these days, people are not really surprised to use like a VM, right? Like they expect to go to any cloud provider and just deploy a VM and just be, be able to SSH into it and use it, all of that. And I think, you know, same thing will happen, will happen with Kubernetes. In terms of data, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, as things get more uh, you know, stable and mature, I, I think, you know, uh, it, it will also become boring. But uh, but I think the other thing that I, at least, you know, in my experience is that, I mean, I've been working on it for a while, right? I mean, four or five years. And, and but uh, it, it's it's also like a constantly changing environment. Yeah. <laughs> like it, 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 you know, in, in that respect, it never gets boring because it's like, we're constantly having to find out, okay, like there's this new thing and then like how you use that or like how you adapt to that. And and, and, and it comes from all sides, right? It, sometimes it comes yeah. from the Kubernetes side, sometimes it is coming from the database itself. Uh, so so I would say that it hasn't been a boring- <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, when I say boring, I mean boring in a good way. Meaning, you know, more controllable, more predictable and things of that nature. But like you said, it's a very dynamic environment. And also the Kubernetes community, I think is one of the things that drives that. You have thousands of people from all over the world that are working on this simultaneously. And, you know, there are three releases per year. So just to stay up to date with that. And that's my next question. As a former Googler and as someone who's very, very deep in the space, what resources are, are your go-to, uh, like, how do you stay up to date? What, are, what would you recommend for folks that are out there that, you know, that want to, you know, not fall behind? Yeah, so to stay up to date, I mean, I personally uh, try to read and every time a new major version of Kubernetes comes out, yeah. I try to really read the change logs, kind of, they usually have a very uh, good and detailed change log like in terms of what has changed, uh, try to kind of understand those. I would say that would be the one thing. These days they are also usually do a, like a blog post series after a major release, like, like just after the 1.2 release. Yep. They've been doing blog posts on the quick blog. Uh, I would say I would read. Uh, and, and then on an ongoing basis, there is a Kubernetes GitHub uh, repo, uh, uh, github.com Kubernetes slash enhancements. So that one, uh, yeah, so that one I usually follow because that's where all the KIPs are, the Kubernetes enhancement proposals. So you kind of can see what's coming up. Uh, yeah, so I would say that those are the things sort of my go-to to sort of keep an up-to-date, uh, and I'll keep myself up-to-date on uh, like what's going on. And I try to follow some of those uh, Kubernetes uh, developers, Google groups. I mean, sometimes there will be things there, but then uh, frankly, it's it's a little hard to, you know, keep up, I guess, because so many things are uh, happening. No, no. And, and, like, and, that, and like you said, that's just part of the process. Like you're never right. going to have too much information. That's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. Right. And then sometimes things are like discussed, but then like, you know, uh, one of the things that we have a policy with QDB today is that we try to support at least last six releases of Kubernetes, which is like a, at least 18 months. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, even if something new shining comes out, we are not really able to use it. Like, 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 for example, the server-side apply thing has been ongoing for a while. If you know the Kubernetes server-side apply, uh, but you know, it just went GA with 1.22, but uh, uh, frankly, we're not going to use it for, again, for some time to, you know, because, because we see people, you know, staying on quite a bit old version of Kubernetes. Yeah, so we have to make sure that everything works. 
uh, I think, sorry about the uh, funny. Oh, good. He just uh, told me that his PC hanged up or maybe he had a power outage. Uh, That's okay. That's not a problem. It's, it's so funny is, you know, we're, we're talking about these extremely advanced technologies, but the yeah. number one most difficult technology that I use is Zoom. <laughs> the amount of problems that we have because yeah. of Zoom, it's unbelievable. So no, that's totally fine. What I would say is that this gives us the excuse perhaps to meet at another time with, uh, with Fahim. And if he wants to do the demo at another date, fine by me. Yeah, we would love to do that. I mean, actually, yeah. So let, let me know. Uh, what, what okay, yeah, well, we can work that out. In the meantime, yeah. um, thank you very much. This was a this is this is amazing. I mean, like the, those slides like showing the reasons why the the mindset behind this, the advantages, the benefits. Um, it's really healthy for us to get these uh, these comments out there in the open um, because sometimes we feel like we're just crazy. But you know, you've been working on this for a while, so it's it's very it's very nice to hear all that. Um, obviously we, we linked, uh, QDB, um, in the, in the, in the chat on YouTube, and yeah. we will definitely be continuing the conversation on, on Slack. So anyway, thank you very much for your, uh, your time today and look forward to reconnecting so we can get the full fledged demo and, uh, and we very interesting to see the other questions that folks out there will have. I love that. Thank you, Bart. All right. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Yeah.